Podcastle, episode 412, for April 19, 2016. For Honour, For Waste, by Setsu Uzume, rated PG-13. Hello everyone, welcome to Podcastle, your weekly release from reality, giving your imagination permission to roam free. I'm your co-editor and host, Graham Dunlop. Just a reminder again that we'll be closing to submissions from May the 1st, and we expect to reopen sometime in June 2016. And straight now into today's story, For Honour, For Waste, by Setsu Uzume, which we're very pleased to say is a Podcastle original. Setsu Uzume spent her formative years in and out of dojos, She also trained in a monastery in rural China, studying Taoism and swordplay. She's a member of Codex and Sifwa. While she's dabbled in many arts, only writing and martial arts seem to have stuck. You can find her on the web at katanapen.wordpress.com and on Twitter at katanapen. Your narrator is Nadia Niaz. Nadia is a writer, academic, editor language nerd, creative writing teacher, and third culture kid who lives in Melbourne, Australia. She divides what little downtime she has between painting, dancing, cooking, knitting, and powerlifting. She's currently trying to build the perfect blanket fort stroke recording studio and working on her first novel. But now, my friends, the time has come. The cycle is at an end. Praise Munaf. It only remains to know the required sacrifice, and then she will bless us. While we wait to find out, enjoy the story. For Honour, For Waste, by Setsu Uzume. Malajin would have been a jewel of a city, were it not the colour of bone. The white houses were carved from the breast of the coastal cliffs, layered and tiered, like the ridges of sand left by an ebbing tide. The sunlight glittered in the water and glowed on the rooftops. For the people of Malajin, every sculpted roof, every coloured glass dish, every morsel of food was a source of pride and lingering fear. Fear that Manaf the Divine would claim your art or your talent to make it or your very life as payment for her blessings. Ronak pushed through a collapsed wicker archway, tangled in its own flowers and banners. Reckless children must have knocked it over. She squinted into the light and scratched the dust and sweat from her scalp. There had been no time to shave her grey hair during the past few weeks. The influx of hundreds of citizens from the surrounding countryside kept her and her soldiers busy. Every 48 years, Manaf came, and every 48 years, people filled the streets, the inns, the banks, and the halls of government to finish their deals and start afresh for the new cycle. Keeping order had been a nightmare. Ronak heard shouting, She found a knot of people in a too narrow street, arguing over the price of cakes. She glimpsed one customer bump the seller's cart, and a length of sugar lace, a beautifully intricate confection, toppled into a basin of water, dissolving instantly. Ronak barked orders for them to clear the street and make way for other foot traffic. They recognised her armour, and backed down. Her segmented plate had been dented and repaired so much that the deep violet enamel had worn away to a dusky black. She was no foot soldier. Seeing the sugar lace made her pause. Two cycles ago, Manaf took a baker's ability to make sugar lace, his prize invention. She blessed the city with surplus food so they could create new works of culinary art. Officially, 
He was a hero. But when he lost his talent, he lost his living, and then his life. Safer to be one of many. Ronak tried to rejoin her unit, but only shoved forward by inches, crushed by the crowd. They walked upward en masse, tier by tier, to the palace. One woman slipped a brown hand over her children's shoulders to pull them out of Ronak's way. Sweat scent, sea salt, sour incense and camphor dogged her all the way to the plaza. Wheat barons and merchant ship captains, cobblers and beggars, all hoping to conclude old business and hear whether or not their prayers would be answered, and at what cost. Last cycle, Manaf ignored the new siege engine offered to her and took the engineer's life. Malajin's army conquered three of their neighbours in exchange. Ronak had been proud of those campaigns once. Now they only reminded her of dear friends lost in the name of service. Ronak didn't dare to ask for a blessing. A city blessed every cycle. One life destroyed every cycle. She couldn't see her unit anywhere. They were supposed to be part of the procession for the priests. A hand from the crowd grabbed her arm and pulled. Ronak whirled, but it was only an usher. He squeezed her arm, not wanting to lose her in the throng. Where is my unit? she shouted over the din. The usher looked terrified for a moment, gesturing that he couldn't hear. He beckoned, and she followed. The usher's red robes flashed amidst the bright blues, yellows, and oranges of precious tunics worn only on festival days. But Ronak couldn't see the violet armour of her soldiers anywhere. The usher dragged her away from the crowd to a smaller doorway, painted with the circle of day. The naked bead stars glowed white against the black stone lintel, and the blue fresco of the ocean's depths cascaded down over the doors, where tiny nuggets of white quartz gleamed. It told a children's story, where the one offered to Manaf would transform into light, scatter across the waves, and keep the stars from going out while they slept beneath the sea. Maybe it had really happened once. Maybe it would again. Ronak wasn't sure why the usher had brought her here after days of rehearsing the ceremony and procession. She tried to keep the panic from her voice before the star door. My unit, I'm supposed to meet with them. Where are they? Your pardon, Commander. The Zoya requested your presence here along with Mark Lord Nuli and Brigadier Kedra. The slurred accent from four provinces away conquered while Ronak herself was still in training. Zoya, she corrected him. Ronak heard a click-drag, click-drag behind her and turned. Manav's tits, boy, I can walk up a few steps on my own. Kedra said to the red-robed usher beside her. Ushers flanked two old soldiers as they approached. Kedra, short and broad, wore a silver-tipped fur cloak that made her look like a hunched troll with fine taste. Grey roots peeked through her blackened hair, further hidden by a slash of blue dye that tinted her scalp, matching the dusky blue of her armour. Each pained step she took drew Ronak's gaze like a scab she couldn't stop picking at. Kedra's right boot, for all its plating, was a brace. Her spear, for all her strength throwing it, was a cane. And that was Ronak's doing. Newly was Kedra's opposite, tall and slender. Her grey braids started at her brow and ended in a long sweep down her back. Nuli's immaculate presentation and stiff bearing spoke more to her breeding and Mark Lord rank 
than words ever would. Her uniform, like all archers, was tinged with green. She looked the same as she had a decade ago. Any words of reunion died in Ronak's mouth. Thirty years of military campaigns and another ten of silence had atrophied the friendship they'd had during training. Nuli spoke instead, gesturing to Ronak. What's she doing here? In the shadows of the star door's foyer, each uniform was as black as wet sand. Where are your guards? asked Ronak. Nuli's soft response was almost a threat. Where are yours? The end of the cycle. The goddess's demands. Us? Ronak whispered. The doors opened. The ushers signalled and they marched through the gate. That rhythm had been in their bones for forty years. Within it, they hid their fear, their panic, and their old wounds. The gathered bureaucrats on either side of the council hall trilled applause as Ronak, Kedra, and Nuli entered under the gold-veined stone arches. Each officer received a wreath of flowers, the only spray of colour against their dark uniforms, sun-browned complexions and greying hair. Manaf's intercessors, Zoia, beckoned them to approach. They looked less human every year. The tincture that brought divine visions had long since yellowed their albino skin. Parts of their bodies had hardened into shell-like plates mottled with colour as proof of their connection to Manaf. Each sat on a throne that had been formed by 48 years of stalactite and stalagmite growth. Once the offering had been accepted, the thrones would be destroyed to make way for the new formation. Ronak found the tall steps between the Zoia and the rest of the hall mesmerizing, even though the city's security matters had brought her here many times. Between her and the intercessors were three raised terraces. The first terrace flowed with salt water, the next with lush aromatic herbs, and the third level, just below the thrones, was a row of tiny flames that hovered just above the herbs without wax nor wick, a gift from Manaf centuries ago, when a new smelting technique had been offered. A marble spike with inlaid gold notches stood on the ground just to the right of these terraces, measuring the progression of the day. Manaf had gathered that inventor to her centuries ago, leaving no blessing but her notes and charts intact. Ronak and Nuli dropped to one knee before the Zoia, and Kedra leaned on her spear. The foremost spoke in a high, tinny voice. Mark Lord, Commander, Brigadier, you have served Malagine with efficiency, excellence and honour. It is our wish to reward Malagine's finest children. Malagine's finest cuts of meat, Kedra muttered. Ronak shared the sentiment. Dust motes flickered around Kedra. In this light, Ronak saw her companions' old nicks and scars and their age. They had been called out and separated to be culled. It is Manaf's wish to provide succour in this difficult time of strife and expansion as Malagine's children spread across the land, said the leftmost, who might have been male many years ago. Manaf wishes to bless our warriors, our soldiers and our strength as a people, said the rightmost. It is this prayer she will answer. Manaf demands all three of you. One. Manaf only ever asked for one offering. Something was wrong. Ronak searched the crowd for their commanding officer, General Vesher. She was nowhere to be seen. It had to have been her who petitioned for this blessing. 
The centermost albino stood and spread his arms. A shaft of sunlight slashed across his features, making him blinding to behold. You have all shaped Malajin's destiny through victories nurtured by Manaf. Now you may shape your own. Present the finest and best of yourselves. Then Manaf shall select the greatest among you to become one with her. This is Manaf's blessing and our offering to her. Everyone cheered. For Manaf, for war, for relief it would not be them. The Sentimos raised a pale hand and continued. For your sacrifice, Mark Lord, Brigadier, your families shall be honoured and elevated. For you, Commander, who have forsworn family as the highest protector of our city, a statue shall be erected in your honour. Nuli inclined her head slightly. Whether she accepted her fate or was too shocked to do more, Ronak couldn't tell. The foremost albino raised his chin and gestured to the marble spike. Go and make your ascent. Two notches before sundown on the highest cliffs above our city, the three of you will demonstrate your finest craft. Manaf will choose the gift we offer as her loyal and loving children. The three of them stood, bowed, and walked out, the roaring applause still humming in their ears. Outside, Ronak squinted into the sunlight. The whitewashed houses and sparkling ocean left nowhere to look that didn't hurt her eyes. Music and cheers deafened them. She wondered if the confectioner, the engineer, the inventor, or any of the others had gone to the offering ground, feeling betrayed. Standing at the edge of the plaza, she glanced back at her once friends. They were just as hurt and scared as she was. Angry, too. This wouldn't stand. Manaf only ever asked for one, yet all three were walking into their doom. What they worked hardest for their whole lives condemned them to death, at Manaf's hands or each other's. Ronak could just pick out their names and titles being shouted, occasionally their provinces. Perhaps the betting had already begun. Ronak opened her mouth to speak, but Nuli cut her off before she began. I cannot imagine what is left to discuss. Did you know? Ronak demanded. I knew it would be me this year, said Kedra. I had planned to present one of my wines. Not a bad death to dissolve into starlight. I didn't know you two would be involved. The only craft soldiers have is killing other soldiers, newly spat. That's all we have to demonstrate. In a few hours, two of us will be dead, and the third joined with Manaf as their body turns to starlight or however the intercessors describe sacrifice to children these days. You knew, but not me, said Ronak, shaking her head, thinking of the old general, the only one who outranked the three of them. I'm in the city. I could have stopped it. Your conscience comes and goes with the tide, Kedra spat. And you, Nuli, you spent so much money solidifying your position. Do you plan to shoot us now, or wait until we're up the hill? Nuli glanced sidelong at Kedra. Don't cheapen this. This shouldn't have happened, Ronak said. This is the way it must be, you said when you maimed Kedra, said Nuli. You spoke the same words, slaughtering thousands of rebels in my province after they had surrendered. In the midst of overwhelming destruction, you just go about the business of the day. You lost your humanity when you swore yourself to the city. True excellence, Ronak. You deserve to be kinless. Kedra pushed past the two of them and spread her arms to address the crowd, fearless and bold. Bring me my carriage, Kedra cried. I will meet Manaf my way. Kedra hobbled down the steps and then hoisted herself inside, shaking her spear one final time to more cheering. 
Before Kedra could close the door, Ronak darted up to her. I will do you no harm, Ronak whispered. Let Nuli and me ride with you if it is to be my final day. The three of us were close once. The cycle is ending, and so with it the old feuds. Let us close this book before we face Manaf, please. Ushers rolled out four other carts for the priests and official witnesses to follow. The Zoia would not be in attendance. Kedra narrowed her eyes, then made way. Ronak beckoned Nuli, who shot her a suspicious look before hopping into the carriage as well. What indolence, Nuli sneered. It's a mere two hours to the top of the cliffs. Kedra pulled one of her wines out from under the seat and pushed the stopper from the bottle with a thumb and took a swig. Well then, officer's table. You have the finest here, Commander, the highest-ranking soldiers at your disposal, before we dispose of each other. It doesn't have to be this way, said Ronak. It's been announced, said Nuli. Kedra offered her the bottle, and she shook her head to refuse it. If we are not to fight each other for this honour, what shall it be instead? Poetry? Oh, we'll fight, said Ronak, but not each other. Kedra arched a brow at her. If we don't fight, our provinces will be fined into ruin, our families will lose their holdings. Ronak's hands balled into fists. Do you really think Manaf wants all three of us? She only ever takes one skill, one treasure, one life. Think! The three of us run the military. General Vesha had her day when she united the peninsula 15 years ago. The Zoia still pay her prettily, but she's left the day-to-day -day running of the city in my hands. It's the same with you and the archers, isn't it, Nuli? And you, Kedra? When was the last time you received more than perfunctory orders regarding the infantry? Problem in Lejeune, take care of Tajine, rebels in Afajine. That's not leadership. We haven't been chosen by Manaf. We've been offered up by a threatened general. Blasphemy, said Nuli. The word came quickly, automatically. But she folded her arms and looked out through the window slat with a look Ronak recognised. A questioning look. Kedra held out the bottle to Ronak. You damn the city, you fool. You want them to drown? To starve? Ronak ripped the bottle from Kedra's hand and threw it out the carriage door. It shattered against the jagged stones and bled over the cliffs. Kedra pursed her lips and fished under her seat for another. Listen to me. The Zoia were bribed by Vesha. Even if Manaf truly wants one of us, what she wants is our excellence. The three of us together could drive her back. Kedra's barking laugh caused the other two to wince. As death approaches, I find it easier to forgive your idiocy. Ronak's eyes slid to Nuli's. Surely you are not eager to die, not when you could best fulfil your duty by remaining where you are. Sacrifice is wasteful, Ronak said. We can't abide waste in the service, can we? Kedra snorted. The carriage bumped along the road and they shifted to balance themselves. This high up, the path wasn't regularly maintained because the offered were usually expected to walk. The priests in the carts behind them raised their voices in sonorous prayer. All war is waste, said Nuli. Wasted lives, wasted lands, wasted silver in poorly managed supply chains. Then stop the waste, said Ronak. I will not have my husband and children threatened because you are afraid to die, said Nuli. Or have you forgotten what's at stake for the rest of us? You forswore family, property and lineage when you became city commander. You have nothing else. Then you see why I cannot allow you to die. 
Roanoke felt her eyes beginning to sting. They had been together through training, through campaigns. They had even encouraged each other once. Then one drunk lieutenant had killed one drunk civilian and run. But you can take my leg, can you? Kedra asked, for the sake of excellence. You should not have protected him, Ronak snapped. The priests blew a chorus of conch shells marking the first half of their ascent. Kedra spoke again softly. I would have done the same for you. They looked anywhere but at each other. Fear. Ronak had thought she had become inured to the anxiety that frayed her resolve on the eve of battle, but this was something more. The admission of need, of family, of something to lose, felt like a bloodletting. And yet it was the truth. It was accurate, and accuracy had saved them before duty, honour, and the law tore them apart. Raindrops pattered on the carriage roof, warning of a storm. The soldier's path is death, Ronak murmured, invoking the old creed. The soldier knows no peace, Kedra added, and will never accept defeat, the three of them whispered together. Never, Ronak said. Newly had hated basic training and the first few years of deployment. Ronak had kept her going. Her faith in herself never seemed to waver. Manaf only showed up once or twice in anyone's lifetime, but Ronak was constant. Once she had an objective, she never accepted defeat. When Nuli spoke again, she said the same thing she always said in these situations. You're insane, Nuli said. So we'll need a plan. She's as big as a house, said Kedra, and covered in armour. She had joints, she had a face, those sound like weaknesses to me, said Ronak. Then she gestured to Kedra, suddenly animated. Remember the siege when Fallenet came through the tunnel under the southwestern wall? Nuli, you weren't there for this. Kedra straightened and knitted her brow to remember. In Tajin, or... No, this was earlier, remember? They filed in just between the two archers' towers at the second wall. Kedra glanced at Nuli. We don't have enough archers to put Manaf in a pincer. Ronak shook her head. We don't need to. There's only one Manaf. The point is, we'll direct her toward one path, Nuli shoots her from above, and then you run in sideways and open her up to stab her heart. Surprise flank! It won't work, said Nuli. Manaf's cave drops into the sea, and she's armoured like a crush claw, solid on top, so that the seabirds can't attack them directly. My arrows would bounce right off, if her form is as monstrous as it was the last time she appeared. Then you need to be in front of her, especially if she rears. Her underside is probably protected also. There's no cover, Nuli objected. How far can you shoot? A hundred strides? asked Ronak. Or has age taken your sight and strength from you? Nuli scoffed. Neither. I could hit Manaf with thumbnail accuracy at two hundred while she thrashes, but I doubt the bow I have now can even harm her. Her voice became shrill. Or if killing her would condemn Malajin's army. If she hungers, she can be killed said Ronak grimly. If she can be killed, she does not control who wins and who dies. We are not brawlers fighting for applause. We are not assassins killing for politics. We are soldiers. We fight together. If Manaf wants one of us, then she must fight all of us, our way. That is excellence worthy of her. Wait, Nuli said. If she can speak to the Zoea from afar, hear their prayers and answer, can she get into our minds also? Could that be a weapon? 
Ronak shrugged. If you can stand still with a quad of sergeants screaming at you, you can ignore anything. Kedra peered out the slat. We're almost to the top. Nuli met Ronak's eyes and then Kedra's. The soldier's path is death, Ronak began. The soldier knows no peace. They whispered the creed together once more. Ronak couldn't bring herself to take their hands in hers. An offered hand would be as empty as words of comfort or hope. The silence stretched around them, thick with everything there was no time to say. The night Ronak took Kedra's leg, she had simply been faster. She had acted on the side of the law. What she had done was cruel, but not wrong. Ronak guessed it was the only reason Kedra hadn't thrown a spear through her. When Ronak put down the rebellion in Nuli's province, no other uprisings followed. She had been cruel, but not wrong. When Ronak had taken an oath to protect the city, she meant every word. She would not let her superior officers, or the intercessors, or even Manaf take more lives than her due. That was wrong. That was cruel. That was not the oath she swore. There was no telling what would happen to Manaf or their city if they won, but at least they would be there to help shape the future. If Ronak was wrong, then their deaths would sate Manaf until the next cycle. Family and politics dissolved like sugar lace within that truth. Each understood and agreed. They were a unit now, and their battle had begun. Kedra chuckled. I hope age has taught you more grace. The face you made trying to free your sword from fallen its spine. Messiest beheading I've ever seen. Nuli and Ronak smirked. The carriage stopped, rain drumming on the roof. The horses bounced their heads, jiggling the reins. The driver's footsteps squelched in the mud as he came around to open the door. Try not to get in each other's way, said Ronak. They hopped out of the carriage and the rain poured down in earnest. Manaf's offering ground stood on a high pillar that jutted up from the ocean like a fishbone needle. The bridge from the tallest part of the cliffs above the city had all but worn away. Ronak, Nuli, and Kedra scooted carefully across the rickety bridge, each carrying a length of rope, leaving the priests behind on the cliffs to observe. Once they were across, they tied their rope to the anchorage to make a new bridge for the next cycle. If there would be a next cycle. Kedra went left, using his spear as walking stick. Nuli slid to the right and circled the perimeter, arrow knocked but lowered. A conch horn blew a long resonant note. Another horn joined it, and then a third. Manaf would know there were three waiting for her on the offering ground. From that moment on, it was between the offered and the goddess. The pillar rumbled. A huge wave rose and splashed against the cliffs. The three soldiers wobbled. The assembled priests gasped. Spray flew up in dingy swathes like uncut gems and the rain fell harder. The mud sucked at Ronak's boots and the sea mist stung her eyes. It was a wonder this pillar of rock hadn't sloughed off into the sea. Thousands of years of salt wind and hungry waves, and still it managed to stand. Praise Manaf. Thousands of years sliced into wedges of forty-eight, when Malaginites offered the best of themselves and their achievements. Sliced right off the top. Praise Manaf. All that work and study snapped up and gone. Praise Manaf. Back into the sea with her as punishment for their excellence.
Nuli's bowstring creaked as she set the arrow in place. The rope bridge between the pillar and the cliffs twisted and bounced. Praise Manaf, chanted the priests. Ronak hoped they'd choke. Nuli darted across the muddy span and up onto the roof of the cave entrance. The plateau shook again, and an ear-splitting, bone-rattling shriek erupted from the cave itself. Praise Manaf, shouted the priests. Our strength for your blessing. Ronak rolled to her feet and fought to stay standing as Manaf emerged from her cave. Water rushed out of it, thick and rank, like an obscene birth. She was huge. Her body was covered in long, multi-jointed arms, some taut with muscle, some chitinous and ending in pincers. She reared up like a millipede, revealing her face. Manaf's eyes were wide and frenzied. Her mouth gaped and stretched back, revealing row after row of teeth. Her nostrils were far apart like a shark's, and she had long black hair that looked like a net of black seaweed. Ronak had been offered up to join with Manaf. In that moment, Ronak realized what that meant, feeling Manaf's mind tearing into her own. Manaf knew that Ronak had betrayed her. Pain rocked Ronak nearly to her knees as Manaf wrenched out and consumed memory after memory. The last time the three of them had laughed together as friends, a traitor's plea to spare his family that Ronak had ignored, the night Ronak had crippled Kedra. This was her excellence and highest achievement. She would sacrifice everything she loved in order to carry out justice. She was a destroyer, and Manaf would consume her to bless her people. Ronak screamed. Manaf screamed too when an arrow shot through one of her raised hands. The plateau wobbled again as towering waves battered the coastline. Thunder shook the air. Manaf swiped at the cave entrance, knocking a chunk of rock away. Nuli dropped down and ran to the edge of the plateau, knocking and shooting arrow after arrow. They were strong enough, they were well aimed, but Manaf kept slapping them away as she advanced. Then Manaf shrieked again, and Nuli staggered, the sound and force of Manaf's will making her eyes water. Ronak couldn't see Kedra, didn't know if she was alive or crushed under Manaf's advance. Manaf turned her slavering face up towards the cliff where the priests were chanting her name. She shrieked again and the crowd screamed. Some fell off the cliff. Manaf's chest expanded and she opened her jaw wide, howling. The wordless cacophony sliced through the minds of everyone gathered with perfect clarity. How dare they send these three! These confused and undecided three, these unreconciled, unfinished three. This is not what was demanded. This is not an offering. The cliff cracked and broke, dropping the priests like pebbles onto the rocks below. The sea churned higher, clawing at the shore and bombarding the cliffs. The clouds roiled and pelted the earth with rain. Manaf howled as Kedra's spear plunged deep into her side. Manaf jerked, hurling Kedra back into the rocks of the cave entrance. Manaf shrieked again, turning towards Kedra's prone form. Rona couldn't let it happen again. Kedra was defenseless, injured. Rona ran at Manaf. Two more arrows hit the goddess in the face and neck. Manaf roared. Ronak leapt. A wave smashed into the spindle pillar and it snapped. The plateau rolled. Nuli dove for the cave mouth. Kedra clutched the ground for dear life. Ronak and Manaf reached for each other and clung. Manaf drew Ronak in toward her mouth. Ronak planted her legs on Manaf's chest as though rappelling down a cliff and swung her sword in wide circles. 
The first slice cut Manaf's throat. Blood arced as they plummeted, and Manaf's rank hair lashed at Ronak's face. One of Manaf's pincers squeezed Ronak's abdomen, and her armor buckled. Ronak swung the blade again and removed Manaf's head. Ronak's triumphant howl was drowned out by the freezing wind and turned to terror as she looked up and saw the beach rushing up to meet her. The pillar crashed down onto the sand. The rest was water and noise. The sea was still. Ronak pried her way free of Manaf's bulk, took two steps back, and buckled. Kedra's arm was broken, and the pain held her awake enough to see where Ronak landed. She roared back to her feet and hobbled to Ronak's side, dragging Ronak face up. Her abdomen was a black smear, slivers of metal wedged deep into her like a sucker fish's teeth, killed by her own armour. Ronak's head lolled and her mouth gaped. Kedra slipped her hand under her friend's neck and cradled her, offering what small comfort she could between the sand and the blood. Newly came running. Sandy seawater splashed Kedra and Ronak as she slid to their side. Newly's hand touched Ronak's abdomen and came away coated. Newly whipped her cloak from her shoulders and gently wrapped Ronak in it. Newly put one arm around Kedra and pulled her close. They touched foreheads, forming a shelter over the city commander. The rain drummed on their armour on the muddy puddles and on the corpse of the great beast, deafening them. The stories said that the one slain by Manaf would become light, and that light would scatter under the waves to feed sleeping stars. But there was no light, only the three of them, the grey beach and their ragged breath. Ah, oh, my friend, Kedra murmured. It would take a goddess to kill you, wouldn't it? Ronak convulsed, her arms thumping her friends. She choked and sputtered, spattering all three of them with black blood. Her eyes bulged. Kedra clutched her, and Nuli clutched Kedra. Movement on the ocean caught Nuli's eye. She tensed. A lifeless lump of debris, tangled in black seaweed, bobbed harmlessly on the waves. The rest of the beach was a disaster of rocks and corpses, the air heavy with salt tang and the cold smell of lightning-burned air. She looked back toward the city, masked by mist and rubble. A turn keened in the distance. Parents shouted for their children. Whether Ronak's death had earned a blessing or if it had ended Manaf altogether, there was no way to know, not in their lifetime. Newly closed Ronak's eyes and then helped Kedra to her feet. A sharp crack pierced the air, and Newly peered through the grey to glimpse a ragged, barefoot girl. The girl squatted, rock in hand, next to an exposed couch. She was soaked, but not shaking. Kinless, but not afraid. In the midst of overwhelming destruction, this little girl set about the business of the day. One by one, she broke open shellfish from the culch and ate them. Ronak would have liked that. And welcome back. I found this a really powerful story. There appears to have been systematic corruption in this society, which may have been going on for decades? Unknown. The involuntary sacrifice ask of the main characters doesn't accomplish what the society had hoped, however. In fact, it heals long-fractured relationships and engenders the courage to stand against a corrupt system 
and a god. And not only to stand against, but kill. I'd say that's pretty strong determination. But now where does that leave the survivors? While that's certainly not the focus of the story, you have to wonder what are the consequences of snuffing out your object of worship? Is Munaf really gone? Why not come and tell us your thoughts on this at forum.escapeartists.net And speaking of the forum, let's go to feedback. This week it's for episode 402, Opals and Clay, by Nino Cipri, and read to you by The Word Whore. This was the second story in our Artemis Rising 2 event, and was guest hosted by the fabulous Ariette de Boudar. All the reactions boiled down to this. I love this story! Well, most anyway. Ogulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgulgul
Yes, that's right. We take your literal guilders and doubloons and pieces of eight, and our team of alchemists squeezes them into the etherflux press to convert them into... um... Stayapium. Yeah, uh, yeah, Stayapium. That's what it is. Whatever's left over goes to pay our authors and narrators for bringing new fantasy vistas to life week after week. Well, I mean, actually, it all goes to that, really. You can make a regular donation for as little as $2 or make a one-off donation of any amount. You can set up donations at the Podcastle website. Go to podcastle.org and find the Support Us section down the right-hand side. If you can't donate, and goodness me, doesn't everyone want your money? We completely understand. You can also help by telling others about Podcastle. Get the word out. Shout it from the very rooftops, my friends. Blog about us. Tweet about us. Instagram about us. Not really sure how that would work. Or face us on Likebook. Leave us a five-star review in iTunes. All of these help. Peter S. Beagle said, Real magic can never be made by offering someone else's liver. You must tear out your own and not expect to get it 